Okay. So, that book I wrote, that's uh, Dependent Origination and Emptiness. So, if I wrote a book on that, they must be somewhat related, right? So, this is basically a look at the relationship between dependent origination and emptiness. When I uh, told you the story of King Ajitasattu coming to see the Buddha, I mentioned that that was Ayakima's favorite sutta and her teacher's favorite sutta, and I put it in my top three. Of course, you might be wondering, all right, what are the other two? Well, we've already talked about one of the other two. That was the Quarles and Disputes Sutta, the one I call the Original Dependent Origination Sutta. And the third one is Samyutta 12.15. So Book 12 of the Samyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses, is the book on Dependent Origination. And this is the 15th Sutta in there. So SN 12.15. The Kachyanagota Sutta. Thus have I heard, once the Blessed One was living at Savati. <clears throat> then the Venerable Kachyanagota approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, sat down to one side and said to him, Venerable Sir, it is said, right view, right view. In what way, Venerable Sir, is there right view? So, first off, when you're reading a sutta, it's important to know to whom the sutta is being given. It helps to have some idea of the background of the audience. And this is the Venerable Kachyanagota. It's not some monk or even Kachyanagota. So, this is, since he's venerable, he's uh, probably a monk of some high standing, meaning he's probably done a lot of practice. So, here's a hint we're going to get in advance teaching. Uh, personally, I think this is the most profound sutta in the whole canon. And he wants to know, in what way, Venerable Sir, is there right view? The Buddha replies, This world, Kachyana, for the most part, depends upon a duality, upon the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. Literally, it's the, the idea of it is and the idea of it is not. You're probably familiar with this. Does Santa Claus exist or does Santa Claus not exist? I mean, it must be one or the other, right? But then, yeah, he makes misbehaving three-year-olds behave right before Christmas just by mentioning his name. He rides in the parades. Uh, he sells Coca-Cola in the U.S., uh, so does he exist or does he not exist? This duality of existence and non-existence maybe doesn't give the full picture. We talked last night about, you know, does free will exist or does it not exist? Yeah, maybe, maybe there's another way of looking at things. Um, but for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there's no notion of non-existence in regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, 
there's no notion of existence in regard to the world. So when something arises and comes into existence, you don't think about non-existent. And when something that's there disappears, you don't think about existence. This world, Katyana, is for the most part shackled by engagement, clinging, and adherence. But this one with right view does not become engaged and cling through that engagement. Mental standpoint, adherence, underlying tendency. One with right view does not take a stand about myself, my soul, my atta. Now, sometimes you hear that the Buddha taught no self. Uh, uh -uh. He's saying don't take a stand about self. Don't say there is a self that exists. Don't say the self doesn't exist. Right? In fact, there's an interesting story where uh, a wanderer named Vajagota comes to the Buddha and wants to know, Venerable Sir, once and for all, is there a self? Now remember, the self that he wants to know about is like a soul. It's the mechanism for rebirth. Is there a self? The Buddha doesn't say anything. Uh, well, Venerable Sir, is there no self? The Buddha doesn't say anything. Vajagota gets up and leaves. And Ananda says to the Buddha, Venerable Sir, why didn't you answer the wanderer of Vajagota? Ananda, if I had said there was a self, would that be congruent with things I've taught in the past? No, Venerable Sir. If I'd said there was a self, he would have fallen into the mistake of eternalism. If I had said there's no self, he would have fallen into the mistake of annihilationism. Better not to say anything at all so the poor man doesn't get any more confused than he is already. Which was a brilliant move on the Buddha's part. Because Vachagota kept coming back and asking more questions and eventually he asked to become a monk. And eventually he became fully awakened. So one with right view does not take a stand about myself. So is there a mechanism for rebirth? One with right view does not take a stand. One with right view has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only dukkha arising and what ceases is only dukkha ceasing. Now, when I first encountered that verse, it was like, what? That chocolate cake I had last night, it arose and it was not dukkha. I enjoyed it very much like to have some more. Of course, it's gone now, so it's ceasing this dukkha. But the headache I had the other day, when it went away, when it ceased, uh, that was not dukkha. Of course, it might come back. That could be dukkha. So what's going on here? Why? What's the Buddha trying to say? Well, there are two ways of interpreting this. One way is to look at dukkha and realize that perhaps a better translation might be not a source of lasting happiness. That chocolate cake was not a source of lasting happiness. It's gone. 
right? And even if there was another slice, the slice I ate last night, that wouldn't be a source of lasting happiness because I want more. And the headache going away, well, that's also not a source of lasting happiness because it might come back. Dukkha is, yeah, unsatisfactoriness, but really not a source of lasting happiness. So looking at the rising and passing of things in the world, when something arises, try and remember it's not a source of lasting happiness. And when it goes away, you can pretty easily recognize was not a source of lasting happiness. Okay, that's one interpretation. The official Mahayana interpretation is that when something arises, you've fallen into the mistake of thinking things exist, and that's a setup for dukkha. And when something ceases, you're falling into the mistake of thinking something does not exist. In other words, you've fallen into this duality of existence and non-existence. And that's just a setup for dukkha, no matter which side of it you fell into. One's knowledge about this is independent of others. Okay, so I'm telling you this. You can read it in the sutta. It's only really going to be profound when it's your knowledge, when you have had the experiences associated with it to give you the insight. So if you believe it right now because I said it, then your knowledge is not independent of me saying it. Right? You need to come to know this for yourself. This is why Ayakima says it's the understood experience. You might have understanding of what I'm saying. You might have confusion of what I'm saying, but that's another matter. But even if you have good understanding of what I'm saying, until you experience it for yourself, you're not independent of the fact that I'm saying it. All exist. Kachiana, this is one extreme. All does not exist. This is the second extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, a Tathagata teaches the Dhamma via the middle. A Tathagata is one who's fully awakened. The word Tathagata uh, literally means one gone such, uh, thus gone, or actually arrived at thusness, or arrived at an understanding of the way things are. So a fully awakened one. And so the Buddha was a Tathagata, and he sometimes would speak, not saying I, but saying a Tathagata, not just him, but anyone who had arrived at suchness, arrived at the ultimate truth. Without veering towards either of these extremes, everything exists, nothing exists, a Tathagata teaches a Dhamma via the middle. And what's the middle? This, that, dependent origination. This, that, conditionality, dependent origination. Now, that's not what the Sutta says. The Sutta actually gives the 12 links of dependent origination in the forward arising order. And then he gives the 12 links of dependent origination in the forward ceasing order. And when I read the sutta and began studying it, it was like, why are the 12 links right here? 
it has no relationship to what's going on in this sutta. This sutta is really, it's really quite profound. And yet, where do the 12 links come from? I wonder if what was there got stepped on and that really what was there originally was ichapataya cha patichasamapada, this, that conditionality dependent origination. And then I was reading studies in the origin of Buddhism by Govind C. Pandi, and he goes through all of the suttas, all of them, and tries to decide whether they're early, late, composite, or don't know. The biggest bucket, of course, is the don't know. You can't tell. But when he got to this sutta, he pointed out that Carolyn Reese Davids pointed out that this sutta appears to have been stepped on that the ending doesn't really make sense in comparison to what's going on. And also there are a bunch of other suttas where it doesn't really make sense. And I thought, aha, I think it got stepped on. I think the Buddha said something like this, that, conditionality, dependent origination. But of course, that's just me and Caroline and Govind, you know, speculating. But then one of my friends sent me a copy of the Chinese version of the sutta. You're all familiar that they're Chinese versions of most of the suttas? So when the Dhamma was spread after the third council, during the time of King Ashoka, King Ashoka sent out, quote, missionaries, monks, and they took the Dhamma with them. But they didn't have a backpack full of suttas. It was not written down yet, so they memorized it. And so they went to Sri Lanka, and that's what has gotten preserved as the Pali Canon, with a few additions and mistakes, and yeah. And it also went to places like Burma, although it died out there and was restarted later from Sri Lanka. But it also went to Kashmir, and then on into Afghanistan. Right? Remember the very tall statues that the Taliban blew up in Afghanistan a while ago? Yeah, that was Savastavadan Buddhism statues, which was Buddhism that had spread from central India into Kashmir, into Afghanistan, and then it went around the end of the Himalayas into China. And the Kashmiri versions of the suttas, which are pretty similar to the Pali Canon, they got translated into Chinese, and that's preserved now as the Chinese Agamas. And so there's a Chinese version of this sutta. This is called Avoiding the Two Extremes and the Teaching of the Middle Way, namely, because this exists, that exists. Because this arises, that arises. Oh, yeah, this, that conditionality. And then it has the 12 links. So I'm guessing that originally, and I'm guessing now, I'm guessing originally it was probably the phrase Hidapachayata Patichasamapada. And then later on, the monks were like, you know, we could throw the 12 links in here and make a nice chorus, you know, because remember that all this is being preserved by chanting it. And so you're chanting away and you're trying to remember it. And then you get to the 12 links and you know that and you can really sing out on the chorus there. That's my guess. All right. Because this, that conditionality dependent origination makes a whole lot more sense. Don't look at the world in terms of existence and non-existence. Look at the world in terms of things arising dependent on other things.
That makes a whole lot more sense. Now, the person that turned me on to this sutta was a fellow by the name of Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna lived in South India in the second century AD. And he was raised as a Brahmin, and by the time he was 20, he was quite well known for his Brahmin scholarship. But he had a sensuous side, and he and three friends learned from a sorcerer how to make themselves invisible. And they went sneaking into the king's palace, into the harem quarters. Ah, uh, yeah, you get the picture. When the king found out about this, he was rather upset, so he stationed soldiers in the harem quarters behind the curtains and told them, strike above the footprints in the carpet. When Nagarjuna and his three friends returned, his three friends were killed. Nagarjuna managed to survive by standing next to the king. He eventually escaped the palace and fled for the hills. He had discovered craving can lead to dukkha. So he began studying the early teachings of the Buddha. It is said that in three months he had completely mastered them, but was left wondering about a few things. At that point, he encountered a Mahayana monk. Mahayana Buddhism was a newly emerging phenomena at that point as a reaction against the monastic community who was spending all their times out in the wood, woods and not really taking care of the people in the villages and towns and so forth. And part of the Mahayana was, it was much more concerned about compassion than the proto-Theravada was. Nagarjuna really liked this view and left his mountain hideaway in search of more Mahayana teachings. He traveled throughout India and he engaged in debate and defeated all comers, whether they were Buddhist or not. He eventually founded an order and rules for his monks to live by. Eventually he said, I have no master. Now, at that point, some Nagas. Nagas are like mythical sea serpents, except they live in lakes, so I guess they're mythical lake serpents. Uh, they play the same role in Indian mythology as dragons do in Western mythology. So these Nagas came and abducted Nagarjuna and took him to the bottom of a lake where the Prajma Paramita Sutras had been preserved. These are Sanskrit sutras that supposedly were given by the Buddha during his lifetime, but were so advanced that the people at the time of the Buddha didn't understand them. So they were entrusted to the Nagas to preserve in the bottom of this lake until someone came along who was smart enough to understand them. And the Nagas felt that Nagarjuna was that guy. And so they entrusted the Prajma Paramita Sutras to him. He brought them back to the human realm and composed commentaries on them. 
The Prajnaparamita Sutras talk a lot about emptiness. Now, when you hear emptiness, don't mistake it for nihilism. Something being empty means it's empty of inherent existence. Back to the cell phone, right? It doesn't have cell phone-ness. It has silicon and metal and plastic and the rubber case and, yeah, the programming and everything else. But it doesn't have inherent existence. Think of a wooden table. You know, you've got a flat piece and you've got four legs coming down, right? It's a table. But it doesn't have any table-ness. If you're a leprechaun, it's a bus shelter, right? Uh, if there's a flood, it might be a life raft. If you're in desperate need of firewood, it's a source of firewood. The conceptualizing, the sanya of table is a concept that we're putting on top of it, but there is no tableness in there. It's empty of that, and it's also empty of firewood and raft and everything else you want to put on it. Okay? All the things are empty. Nothing has inherent existence, including yourself. I mean, we want to say that, oh yeah, there's an essence of me in there. Uh, but that's the not-self you can't find. Right? One of the commentaries on the Prajmaparamita Sutras is the Mulamayamaka Karika. It's, well, it's debate notes more than anything else. It's not a really polished work. There's 27 chapters, and they attempt to, well, elucidate emptiness, not really describe it, but just point at it so that someone who understands what the debate is all about begins to get a sense of what is being taught when emptiness is taught. So what I want to do now is share a few of these chapters with you. They're all quite short. The first one is entitled Walking. I do not walk between the step already taken and the one I'm yet to take which both are motionless. Is walking not the motion between one step and the next? What moves between them? Could I not move as I walk? If I move when I walk, there would be two motions, one moving me and one my feet. Two of us stroll by. There is no walking without walkers and no walkers without walking. Can I say that walkers walk? Couldn't I say they don't? Walking does not start in steps taken or to come or in the act itself. Where does it begin? Before I raise a foot, is there motion? A step taken or to come, whence walking could begin? What has gone? What moves? What is to come? Can I speak of walkers when neither walking, step taken, nor to come ever end? Were walking and walker one, I would be unable to tell them apart. Were they different, there would be walkers who do not walk. These moving feet reveal a walker, but did not start him on his way. 
There was no walker prior to departure. Who was going where? So were walking and walker one, I would be unable to tell them apart. Were they different, there could be walkers who do not walk. So a walker does require that there be walking happening. They're dependently related. But you can't have walking without somebody doing the walker, being the walker who's doing the walking. And you can't have a walker unless there's some walking taking place. These are both concepts. They're not the same, really, okay? But they're not separate from each other. They're both empty of any sort of essence. They're dependently originated. Seeing. If my eyes cannot see themselves, how can they see something else? Were there no trace of something seen, how could I see at all? Neither seeing nor unseeing see. Seeing reveals a seer who is neither detached nor undetached from seeing. How could you see and what would you see in the absence of a seer? Just as a child is born from mother and father, so consciousness springs from eyes and colorful shapes. Without these eyes, how could I know consciousness, contact, vedna, craving, clinging, becoming, birth, aging, and death? Seers seeing sights, explain hearers hearing sounds, smellers smelling smells, tasters tasting tastes, touchers touching textures, thinkers thinking thoughts. If my eyes cannot see themselves, how can they see something else? You can't see your eyes. You can get a mirror and see the reflection of your eyes, but you can't see your eyes. You can't hear your ears. You can't smell your nose. You can't taste your tongue, but you're thinking, oh, but I can touch my body. But you have to touch one part of your body with another part of your body. Touch the tip of your finger with the tip of your finger. No, can't do that. Right? But then you're thinking, but I can think about my thoughts. But the thought you're thinking about your thought is not the same as the thought you're thinking. Right? There's always, yeah, there's always this relationship going on. Subject and object. Seeing reveals a seer who is neither detached nor undetached from seeing. So just like with walking in a walker, you don't have a seer who isn't seeing, and you don't have seeing without somebody who's the seer, right? Again, this inner relationship, this dependency on the noun and the verb, they're dependent on each other. This next one is body. I have no body apart from parts which form it. I know no part apart from a body. A body with no parts would be unformed. A part of my body apart from my body would be absurd. Were the body here or not, it would need no parts. Partless bodies are pointless. Do not get stuck in the body. 
I cannot say my body is like my its parts. I cannot say it's something else. Vedana, perceptions, sankharas, minds, things are like this body in every way. Conflict with emptiness is no conflict. Objections to emptiness, no objections. So, a part of your body is not your body, and yet if you took all the parts of your body away from each other, you wouldn't have a body. I mean, sometimes you do take parts away. You go get a haircut. You walk in, you sit down, they cut your hair, you look on the floor. Oh no, some of me is on the floor. You ever have that reaction? No? Okay. Or, or you clip your fingernails, and one by one, part of you is dropping into the garbage can. Oh dear. No, you don't think like that? Now, if you were to lose an arm or, well, this is getting gross. Let, let's, let's take your red Ferrari. I'm assuming all of you have a red Ferrari. Yeah? Okay, good. So, you have your red Ferrari. What if you took off one of the wheels? Would it still be a red Ferrari? What if you took all four wheels off? Would it still be a red Ferrari? What if you took out the steering wheel? What if you pulled out the seats? What if you pulled the motor, dropped the transmission, took out the differential? What if you unscrewed everything that was screwed to everything else and laid out all the parts? Would it still be a red Ferrari? If it's not, where did the red Ferrari go? I mean, at what point did it stop being a red Ferrari and just become a pile of parts? And when it stopped being a red Ferrari, where did the red Ferrari go? I mean, and when it was a red Ferrari, where was the pile of parts? Okay, things that are made of other things, which turns out to be everything, are not the same as the things that, that they're made of, but they're not separate from the things they're made of either. This simile was actually originally from the nun named Frigira. This is described in uh, the Five and Dime Sutta, Samyutta 5, Sutta number 10. Only she didn't say red Ferrari, she said chariot, right? And so she took apart a chariot, and there's, where did the chariot go when it's just a pile of parts? Where would you go if you took off all of your parts, right? The next one I want to share with you is entitled Self. Were mind and matter me, I would come and go like them. If I were something else, they would say nothing about me. What is mine when there is no me? Were self-centeredness eased, I would not think of me and mine. There would be no one there to think them. What is inside is me, what is outside is mine. When these thoughts end, compulsion stops, repetition ceases, freedom dawns. Papancha spawns thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. Emptiness stops Papancha. 
Buddhists speak of self and also teach not self and also say there's nothing which is either self or not. When things dissolve, there's nothing left to say. The unborn and unceasing are already free. The Buddha said it is real and it is unreal and is both real and unreal and is neither one nor the other. It is all at ease. No amount of papancha is going to set it straight. It's incommunicatable, inconceivable, indivisible. You are not the same as or different from conditions on which you depend. You are neither severed from nor forever fused with them. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who care for the world. When Buddhas don't appear and their followers are gone, the wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. This is probably worth rereading. Were mind and matter me, I would come and go like them. If I were something else, they would say nothing about me. So, yeah, you have a body and a mind. Uh, but, you know, you change out all of your cells every seven years. So that means you're a new person every seven years. And you change your mind a lot more often than every seven years. So every time you change your mind, are you somebody new? Uh, but yet, you, you're not free of these. If I were something else, they would say nothing about me. So, yeah, you're not your mind, you're not your matter, but you're not independent of your mind and your matter. And the mind and the matter keeps changing and you keep thinking you're you. What is mine when there is no me? The Buddha's strategy to overcome dukkha is to overcome craving and clinging. The strategy for overcoming craving and clinging is to penetrate the illusion, the delusion of self. So if there's no delusion of self, there's no basis for selfish action. And so there's no craving and clinging because there's nobody there to get it. And so there's nothing that's mine because there's no me there who's saying it's mine. Were self-centeredness eased, I would not think of me and mine. There would be no one there to think them. <coughs> what is inside is me, what is outside is mine. When these thoughts end, compulsion stops, repetition ceases, freedom dawns. Yeah, if it's inside, it's me. And if it's out there, it's mine. Or I want it to be mine. Or I want it to go away so that it's no longer mine. Or whatever. But we're basically operating like that. When these thoughts end, compulsion stops. When you're compulsive about something, uh, isn't yourself at the center of that compulsion? I want it. I got to get rid of it. I, I got to get it again. Whatever. Repetition ceases. You're not caught in a loop. Freedom dawns. Papancha spawns thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. Emptiness stops papancha. So last night in the Honeyball Sutta, right? 
we had you know the sense contact all the way up to the thinking and the thinking getting out of hand and then the papancha and that leading to craving and clinging and all the other unwholesome states right uh, papancha spawns thoughts that provoke compulsive acts so thoughts spawn papancha papancha spawns more and more and more thoughts and that leads to compulsive acts. Understanding emptiness helps you stop the papancha. Buddhists speak of self and also teach not self and also say there's nothing which is either self or not. So when the Buddha's teaching metta, you're to send metta to all as to oneself. Right? So you're sending it to a bunch of selves and you're sending it to your own self. So the Buddha's teaching selves. When he's giving the so-called second discourse on the aggregates, body is not self, Vedna is not self, Sanya is not self, Sankara is not self, consciousness is not self, he's teaching not self. And there's nothing which is neither self or not is basically the uh, essence of the Kachyanagota Sutta that we were thinking of, that we were looking at. Don't get caught in the duality of existence and non-existence. He's teaching, it's not that it is self, it's not that it's not self, it's that you shouldn't get caught in that duality. When things dissolve, there's nothing left to say. The unborn and unceasing are already free. Can you examine the world without thingifying the world? As I said, there's the universe, and it's too big for our little pea brains. And so in order to deal with the world, find enough food, find clothing, find shelter, etc., the things we need to survive, we have to chop up the holistic universe into things. We thingify the world, right? And when we do, we want this one, and we want to get rid of that one, and this one is me, and, and we're missing the bigger picture. When things dissolve, there's nothing left to say. When things dissolve, all that's left is the entire universe. They don't dissolve into nothingness. They dissolve into the thingifying isn't happening. The unborn and unceasing are already free. If you don't look at the world in terms of things, then nothing gets born. And nothing ceases. There's just the holistic universe rolling on. But we go chopping the world up into bits and pieces. And then we hope they'll stick around. We think, oh, I like this thing. This thing is a great thing. I'm going to keep this thing. And then when it changes, dukkha. Let's say you go to the beach, a sandy beach. I know in England you've got a lot of rocky beaches, but you must have some sandy beaches, right? You go to the sandy beach and you take some kids with you. And you build a sandcastle, a really cool sandcastle, turrets, drawbridge, the whole works, a moat, and then a big wave comes along and wipes it out. The kid might be upset, screaming, right? Are you, are you upset? No, you understand the nature of sandcastles, right? I mean, them getting wiped out by big waves, part of the fun, right? You weren't attached. 
Well, I got news for you, folk. It's all sandcastles. Every bit of it. Anytime you carve something out of the holistic universe, you're just carving out a sandcastle. It has arisen and it's going to cease. Remember back to uh, the first sermon at the end? Kadanya, he knew. Anya Kadanya. What did he know? All that arises also ceases. All that arises. The arising is your understanding of what is going on with basically the unfolding. I mean, that's all that's really happening. We could say the universe is unfolding, but you don't even need the universe. There's just unfolding. And it's unfolding. And we grab one piece of the unfolding and we try and hang on to it and make it a thing. And it's my thing. And when it ceases, it's dukkha. Or something comes out and it's that thing is producing dukkha and we want it to go away. But when the things dissolve, there's nothing left to say. The unborn and unceasing are already free. The Buddha said it is real and it is unreal and it's both real and unreal and it's neither one nor the other. The Buddha wasn't doing metaphysics. He said what he thought was going to be helpful for his listener to get him to go practice. He wasn't trying to explain the world. Yeah, I've been doing some world explaining here. Sorry about that. But the Buddha is just trying to take a look at what's going on from a point of view that his listener could understand that would inspire them to go do the practice. It is all at ease. No amount of papancha is going to fix it. It's incommunicatable, inconceivable, indivisible. In order to communicate the whole universe, well, you can point at it like the finger pointing at the moon. Actually, it's more like the finger pointing at the Andromeda galaxy. You can see the moon really easily. It's hard to see the Andromeda galaxy, right? You can point at it, but you can't communicate the whole of the universe. It's inconceivable. You can't conceptualize the entire universe. And that's all because it's indivisible. If you separate out a piece of the universe, you're no longer getting the big picture. Right? So really to understand what's going on, I can't tell you. All I can do is point and hope that, yeah, my pointing is in the right direction and I paint my finger enough so that it gets your attention and points you to understanding what I'm pointing at. And then, you know, I talked about soda pie, streams of dependently arising processes interacting. This is basically the, the premier thing that triggered my coming up with that phrase. You are not the same as or different from conditions on which you depend. You're neither severed from nor ever forever fused with them. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhists who care for the world. So think about the food you had for lunch. You're not the same as that food, but you're never totally severed from it either, right? It's gone into you, it's, you've digested it, it's part of your body now, your body's going to change, maybe at some point there are no atoms left from that food, but the changes that have taken place in your body, or at least some part, 
due to the fact that you ate lunch today. Right? So you're not the same as or different from the conditions on which you depend. You are neither severed from nor forever fused with them. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhists who care for the world. You're just as empty as everything else. When Buddhists don't appear and their followers are gone, the wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. You don't need the Buddha to tell you this. You don't need any follower of the Buddha to tell you this. You just have to examine reality carefully enough for yourself. The truth is out there. You've just got to take a deep enough look and see it. However, I'd have never seen it without the Buddha and his followers pointing it out to me. Okay, it's, it's difficult to see, but it's out there. The wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. One more here. This one, well, I'm reading Stephen Batchelor's translation, and he translated it as awakening. Most translators translate it as the Four Noble Truths. It starts with an imaginary opponent complaining that Nagarjuna is teaching nihilism, basically, because the opponent doesn't understand emptiness, and he thinks it's the same as nihilism. The opponent says, if everything is empty, there would be no rising and passing. Ennobling truths would not exist. There would be no understanding, letting go, cultivating, realizing. Without tasting the fruits of practice, there would be no community. With no truths, no dharma either. With no community or dharma, how could you awaken? Talk of emptiness maligns what is of value. Acts and fruits, good and evil, conventions fall apart. And then Nagarjuna says, Not knowing emptiness, the need for it, or the point of it, you subvert it. The Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths. Partial truths of the world and truths that are sublime. So, the teaching of the two truths does not occur explicitly in the suttas. There are hints of it in there. At the end of Dignikaya number 9, the Potapada Sutta, the Buddha says, A Tathagata can use these words, I, me, and mine, and not be fooled by them. So it's hinting at the two truths. The two truths finally gets elucidated in the questions of King Melinda. King Melinda was one of the kings left behind by Alexander the Great's invasion of Afghanistan. And he had a bunch of questions for this fully awakened monk named Nagasena. And so the questions and Nagasena's answers are preserved in the questions of King Melinda. This is not part of the Pali Canon, although it's available in Pali, because that's probably, maybe it was originally written in Sanskrit, but it's available, and at least the first parts of it are really interesting. It appears to have been compiled over time, somebody adding more stuff. And one of the things in there is the doctrine of the two truths. And now we get, uh, what, about three or four centuries later to Nagarjuna, and the doctrine of the two truths is much more important. 
So the Dhamma taught by the Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Actually, instead of partial truths of the world, what Nagarjuna said was truths that don't fully reveal. Okay? Truth is, this is my cell phone, but it doesn't fully reveal the silicon and plastic and metal and the sweatshop where it was made and the software that was written and so forth. And it's only mine temporarily. At some point, it's going to wear out or break or get lost or stolen or something. Right? So saying it's my cell phone doesn't fully reveal what's going on. And truths which are sublime. Truths from the ultimate perspective. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Sometimes when someone gets a really deep insight into not-self, they start wondering, well, how can I do metta? There's no selves. Okay. You're trying to interpret an ultimate truth from a relative perspective or vice versa. And that that's, doesn't work. Okay. I actually like to think of it as two perspectives. If I had a bowl here, right, is the bowl concave or convex? Which is it? Just an ordinary soup bowl. Is it concave or convex? Come on, those are opposites. Which one is it? Well, it depends on your perspective. If you're going to put soup in it, you better take the concave perspective. If you're going to use it to elevate a candle, probably going to work better with the convex perspective, right? It depends on the perspective. So the two truths are actually, I would say, truths seen from two different perspectives. There's this perspective of the relative world, the conventional world. And in the conventional world, this is conventionally my cell phone. And this is me, and that's you, and you're staring at your computer screen, and I'm staring at my computer screen. This is the conventional world. The absolute world, there's more going on than that. In fact, it's so profound what's going on. It's incommunicatable, inconceivable, indivisible when you get the full big picture, right? So without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. If you try and interpret metta from the ultimate perspective, yeah, it's just going to be confusing. But without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Everything I say is from the conventional perspective. I can't say anything from the ultimate perspective because it's incommunicable. It's inconceivable, right? So I have to use words from the relative perspective as the finger pointing at Andromeda. Or pointing at the ultimate. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. This is why it's important to be able to shift to the ultimate perspective and find the truths that are available from that perspective, because that's the perspective that leads to freedom. That's the perspective that leads you out of the self-conceiving, Hence the selfishness, hence the craving and clinging, hence the dukkha. So we need to be able to shift to, well, the proper perspective. Now, sometimes when people get a hit of the ultimate, they want to dismiss the relative as unimportant. But you can't cross the street 
from the ultimate perspective. From the ultimate perspective, you look down the street, the bus is empty, you step in front of it, you're dead, right? Yes, it was empty. It may have been even relatively empty with nobody on but the driver. But it wasn't empty in terms of you being able to cross the street in front of it. To cross the street, you've got to drop into the relative perspective. When the Buddha went on alms round, he took his robe and bowl and went into town and begged for alms. And when he ate the food, he could distinguish between the food and his fingers. He never ate his fingers, right? This being able to distinguish conventional level is necessary for survival. But the truths at that level are not sufficient to give you the freedom you need to escape dukkha. The freedom is only found from the ultimate perspective. And that's looking at the world, not in terms of selves and things and so forth, but, well, in terms of the unfolding. Misperceiving emptiness injures the unintelligent, like mishandling a snake or miscasting a spell. The Buddha despaired of teaching the Dharma, knowing it hard to intuit its depths. Your muddled conclusions do not affect emptiness. Your denial of emptiness does not affect me. You could see, you could see where Nagarjuna would be pretty tough in a debate. He's basically saying to his opponent, "Hey, guy, you got a lot of dust in your eyes. The Buddha, the Buddha didn't want to teach because of all you people with dust in your eyes. You need to clean your eyes out and see what's actually going on." When emptiness is possible, everything is possible. Were emptiness impossible, nothing would be possible. Empty of an essence. Empty of inherent existence. The table has no tableness. Right? Now, one of the implications of something having an essence is that it's like that forever. An essence doesn't change. If an essence changed, it wouldn't be an essence. It would no longer be essential. So essence has to not change. So if there were things that had an essence, they would be like that forever. When emptiness is possible, everything is possible. There can be changes. Things can arise. They can pass away. Were emptiness impossible, nothing would be possible. It'd just be frozen like that. In projecting your faults onto me, you forget the horse you're riding. This is a story about a man who had two dozen horses. And one day he wanted to go out and count his horses. So he mounted up on one of his horses and he rode around counting the horses. One, two, three, twenty-two, twenty-three. Oh no, there are only twenty-three horses. What's happened to the other horse? Forgetting the horse he's riding. Yeah, Nagarjuna would be tough in a debate. To see things existing by nature, that is, with an essence, is to see them without causes or conditions, thus subverting causality, agents, tools, and acts, starting, stopping, and ripening. So now he's addressing the complainant's complaint. Dependent origination is emptiness, which dependently configured is the middle way. Everything is dependently originated Everything is empty. Most scholars like this verse is the best verse in the whole Malayama Kakarika because it equates dependent origination and emptiness. 
Dependent origination is emptiness, which dependently configured is the middle way. This translation doesn't bring it out, but what Nagarjuna is saying is emptiness is also empty. It's just another concept. Don't go be making a big deal about emptiness. At one point in here, he says, believers in emptiness are incurable, right? It's another concept to try and help you understand what's going on. One of the commenters on the Mulamayawaka Karika says that basically what Nagarjuna is doing is climbing up ladders, and when he gets to the top of each ladder, he kicks it away. And then he climbs up the next ladder and kicks it away until he gets to the very top where all that's left is emptiness and he kicks that away too. Everything is empty. Everything is dependently originated. Now this particular chapter goes on for quite a while basically discussing the rest of the uh, person's complaint. And in the end it says, to see dependent origination is to see dukkha, its origin, its cessation, and the path. In other words, equating the Four Noble Truths and dependent origination. Uh, the next chapter is on nirvana. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. Just one little bit in here that's kind of interesting. Samsara is no different from nirvana. Nirvana is no different than samsara. Samsara's horizons are nirvanas. The two are exactly the same. So this is the famous equating samsara and nirvana. Basically what Nagarjuna is saying is this right here, this is samsara if you see it with the eyes of craving and clinging. And this, this same exact thing is nirvana if you see it with the eyes of a Buddha. Right? It's not that Nibbana is some heaven you go to when you're an Arahant or anything like that. It's perceiving the world differently. It's experiencing the world without the craving and clinging. And so, this is what we've got. This is the universe. And Nibbana is experiencing it differently. So maybe we should say a little more about Nibbana, Nirvana, Nibbana's Pali, Nirvana's Sanskrit. Well, that's tomorrow night's talk. So I'm going to stop here and uh, with a little bit of trepidation say, any questions?